Welcome to The Coaching Kool-Aid. Today's episode is all about resilience, and to help us unpack the term, we've brought in special guest Dr. Michael Kavanagh. As always, we'll start with some background and definitions from the literature, before moving on to having a chat about the way resilience is sometimes misconceived, with potentially detrimental outcomes. As always though, we'll end the conversation by suggesting some positive and effective ways in which resilience building can be incorporated into our coaching practice. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Coaching Kool-Aid. I'm Renee Lockwood. I'm Melanie Weeks. And today we have with us Dr. Michael Kavanagh, Clinical Psychologist and Deputy Director of Coaching Psychology Unit at the University of Sydney. Thank you for coming, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being in your office. (laughs) Now, the reason we wanted to talk to Michael today is because he's been a very profound influence on us. He was one of our lecturers. We really enjoy the fact that he is always critical of simplistic and linear solutions and the fact that he's a big fan of systems thinking, and that he's obviously very into evidence-based coaching, which is what we're all about here as well. Mm-hmm. Now, the topic of today is resilience. This is something that Michael is particularly passionate about. To give a bit of background, resilience is really a buzzword, isn't it? And it has been for a long time. It is. Again, one of those ones that's doing the rounds of uh, social media. I do a bit of the social media research. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we also know that there are lots of short seminars and workshops Mm. offered in organisations that will train your employees in resilience. It's huge in education. So as with all of our episodes, we're going to be looking at, you know, the problematics of the term and then also thinking about how we could use it more usefully. Mm. To give a little bit of background on resilience, um, I I was looking at some meta studies and, and some research And it seems that in the psychology literature, at least, it's based around the two concepts, tell me if I'm wrong here, but adversity and positive adaptation. So in order to have or to demonstrate resilience, you have to show positive adaptation in the context of adversity. But I wonder if those concepts themselves can't be problematic. I mean, what is adversity? Is that a universal term or is it relative? So, yes, I think you're spot on there that they're, they're the two basic terms of resilience. But I think if we're going to really think about resilience, there's several different avenues into thinking about it. One is, you know, what's the definition of the term itself? Yeah. Resilience is really comes from the Latin word resilire, meaning to bounce back. And the, the notion of something being resilient, it's really a material property, particularly of metals and other things like that which means that once put under stress, it bounces back to its previous state. I don't think that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about resilience in psychology, because it's not just about bouncing back to a previous state, it's about adapting to a new state, Mm -hmm. and that's what is meant by resilience. Interestingly, what we've done, I think, in psychology generally, and this is not true of all theorists in in the field, is we've made resilience a bit like a material property of people. We've defined resilience as a personal characteristic. Or a trait even. A trait, trait. yeah. Yeah. And in fact, there are trait resilience measures, and most of the measures are are trait-like. And I think that that explains something. It explains why most of the studies on resilience produce really poor results. 
And the reason why it explains it is I think we've got, we've got the wrong definition of it. We're making what I would call an error of kind, that resilience isn't a trait of a thing, of a person. It's a relationship, a relation between a thing, a person, and the environment. And that's, I think, the big error that's been made. So, you know, Martin Seligman, some years ago, uh, received over $100 million, I believe, to run the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program for the US military, uh, based on the, the Penn State model. And a major part of that was resilience. I was at a talk the other day where the person who talked about it said that but they haven't really published outcome studies because the change in resilience that has been produced has been negligible. Really? Very small. That's my understanding. Mm. I haven't done the, the research mm-hmm. myself to, to check that out. That's but, an interesting um, point. But that's really important. And, mm. But it's true across the resilience literature that the attempts to build resilience usually produce small or best medium effect sizes. Do you know what attempts are being made? Because I understand that there's this idea that there can be these protective elements that go into building resilience like self-esteem or self-efficacy, positive emotions, all of those things. Mm -hmm. So what are people doing, or what was Seligman doing, to your understanding, to build resilience in people? Um, I'm not across the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program, but they're essentially using a PERMA model. Right. Mm-hmm. To, um, to run all the whole of the US military through that program to build resilience. But I don't really want to talk about Seligman and, sure. and, and their model as such. Mm. What I'd like to do is question what we mean by resilience. Mm. And you mentioned before systems theory. Well, there's a law in systems called Ashby's Law. Mm-hmm. And to paraphrase it, it suggests that an organism or a part of the system has to have the requisite variety, and the law is called the law of requisite variety, has to have the requisite variety of responses to meet the variety of challenges that it has. And this, I think, is at the heart of resilience. Now, one of the the issues that I see in, in psychology is in most approaches to resilience, all of those responses have to be located in the individual. Now, I would suggest from a systems perspective that that's not true. One of the reasons why resilience has been thought of so highly, particularly in education, is um, Seligman and co. came over and went to places like Geelong Grammar and ran resilience programs for the kids there. Now, one of the things that doesn't get noticed is that the kids in those environments are actually in resource-rich environments. They come from families that have lots and lots of resources. So what makes the difference between those kids in terms of resilience? Well, often it is the way that they think, because all of the rest is resource-rich. It's pretty much in place, Mm -hmm. yeah. But I work in a program called the Helmsman Project, which is looking at um, building hope, self-regulation and resilience amongst kids from southwestern Sydney. And that's a resource-poor environment. And so the thing that stops them being resilient is not what's going on in their heads, but actually what's going on in their world and the resources that they have to to draw upon. So that becomes the roadblock for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that gets missed in most approaches in psychology, that Mm -hmm. we see resilience as a personal characteristic Mm -hmm. as opposed to 
a relation between a person and the system. Sure. This, this, I think, has been our problem with it, is that it's certainly been used in my, my children's school mm-hmm. and then was used, you know, a, again in this very individualistic way and, and almost a... Blaming. Blaming, mm. you know, that, that if your child had had a setback, well, they need to be more resilient. Mm. Um, and it was very much from that bounce-back sort mm-hmm. of approach. In mm-hmm. fact, I think the program was even called bounce-back but very much the focus on the individual. And I think, from what I've heard, a few of these two-hour workshops that are being run uh, within the corporate sphere, very much based on how can you be more resilient and very little, if no, focus on the broader system um, supporting that. And and I think what we're seeing in the corporate world generally, or in business, in, in the world of work, is people being asked to do more and more and more with less and less resources. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that does affect resilience. And so as, a, as an answer to that, we're having resilience programs put in, which is about trying to toughen up yeah. the individual. And there'll be a certain amount of good that can be done that way because, once again, resilience is a relation. It involves the individual. But that will only have a certain amount of capacity. So what led me to thinking about resilience this, this way was refugees. When you think about refugees, they're the most resilient people on the planet when you think about it. They've come out of war-torn places, they've left their homes, their everything behind, and they've got on boats and so on to come to Australia. So these are some of the most resilient people on the planet. You mean in the sense that they're not rocking back and forth in a corner? or Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. They're actually struggling to continue to adapt and to move forward. And then we put them into a place like Nauru or mm. Manus, and what happens? They, they do start end up rocking, in the rocking backwards yeah. and forwards. So mm. what's happened to these people? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not that all of a sudden these people, you know, who were so resilient, aren't resilient anymore. Mm. What's happened is we've overwhelmed their individual resources. We've taken away, systematically done so, and this is why you know the UNHCR talk about it as torture. Mm-hmm. systematically taken away all hope. So my definition of resilience is the effective use of redundant resources to enable a person or a system to cope with stress. What is fundamental to resilience is the possession of redundant resources or access to redundant resources. Mm-hmm. Now those redundant resources might be internal mm-hmm. or external. We just in psychology mostly just focus on the internal. But External resources are just as important. So, you know, you think about it. If you lost your job, would you be resilient? Well, yes, you've got a whole bunch of resources around you, like money in the bank and networks and so on, that are external to you that can help you get a new job. But if you don't have those networks and you don't have those resources outside, then internal resources are all you've got left. And if those internal resources, i.e. your education, which is in a sense an external resource as well, because it's come to you from the system, intelligence, a history of being able to make a go of things, and a social support network around you. If you don't have those things, then you end up in some horrible places. And, you know, we see this in our society Mm. where we've got, you know, women in their 50s ending up homeless. No superannuation. That's right. Yes. You know, as a result Mm -hmm. of that. Now, that's not because they are not personally resilient. It's because they don't have access to redundant resources, Mm -hmm. i.e. resources that they're not using that they can Mm -hmm. use to then meet the challenges around them. 
And I think in, in terms of that, the context and the environment, I believe, is incredibly important. There are so many strings pulling on people. And another one I was talking to Mel about before, the Dunedin Longitudinal Study that mm-hmm. has found a lot of really interesting genes, one of them being um, a variation in the serotonin transporter gene that interacts with life stresses to predict depression mm-hmm. and to predict, therefore, a lack of resilience in certain circumstances. They looked at a whole bunch of people in this study who had been through the Christchurch earthquake. And if they have the short version of this gene, they're statistically significantly more likely to not bounce back in the same way as those people who have the long gene. So, yeah, so, the so they may is, need more resources external to themselves yeah. to survive. One of the sort of societal critical thinking things we need to do is why is it that we want to make resilience all about the individual? It means then that we don't have to supply redundant resources. We don't have to fatten the system, if you like. We can ask more from people. So where does all of that redundant resource go? It goes into the hands of of those who own the system. Mm. In a sense, what they do is hoover up all of that excess or redundant resource in the system and then ask people to adapt to a lower resource environment. And yeah. I think that's something worth thinking about. Oh, it's definitely. it's definitely worth thinking about. My main criticism of resilience is that it, it is essentially, especially in the discourse that we see it in, an externally defined imperative. So the discourse around resilience emphasises the prevalence of turbulence it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, mm. whilst placing the onus on individuals to learn how to adapt, rather than looking at systemic solutions to preventing those conditions for, of for crisis and suffering in the first place. I think place. That's, that's exactly the right approach here, mm. because I think if we're going to ask people to produce stuff in a highly volatile and changing world, mm. then we have to provide that level of resource around them that mm. enables them to weather the ups and downs and struggles and challenges that they're going to experience. And to not do that, I think, is cruel in a way. I mean, as politicians, it's, it's pretty clear, and as voters, what, what we need to do in that regard. What about as coaches? What can we do? Well, I, yeah, I was wondering, how, how do you approach that at the Helmsman Project? Okay, so one of the things that we do in the Helmsman Project is to help people identify the resources that they have around them. And then, well, there's two elements. One is maximising their internal resources, but also identifying external resources and supplying external resources. Things like cultures, for instance, so that they get a sense of what they're capable of. Now, that's an external resource. You don't just throw kids and say, okay, go and be resilient or go and meet this challenge. They have to learn how to do those things. One of the things that that I think as coaches that we can do around resilience is to have a bigger view of resilience. You see, I think in many ways the definition in psychology of resilience is nothing more than hardiness or grit. It's just saying you've got to toughen up. We need, as coaches, to have a bigger view about resilience. There are a couple of different elements that I think we need to think of. One is we need to start focusing on external resources and means to garner external resources while not losing the focus on a person's capacity to use their internal resources Mm -hmm. to problem solve. Because resilience is really, adaptation is really about problem solving. So we need to have a think about that. We also need to have a think about what are the challenges in the environment. And that will vary from person to person. 
So that if you've got a really big mortgage that you're struggling to pay mm-hmm. and you don't, with the same set of internal resources, you're going to be more challenged than you. And so when we add new challenges to that, when you put a new stressor in the system, then people's capacity to respond drops. And we've got a system, lots of systems issues now where we're putting stressor upon stressor upon stressor. Mm-hmm. And people are struggling to respond. And not giving them any more resources externally. In fact, no. taking away the resources. But giving them a two-hour workshop on resilience. And yeah. Saying, Toughen up. That's yeah, it. and there we have. We tick the box. So I think yeah. looking at what are the external resources available to the individual mm-hmm. and how can they access that, that's, a, that's another element. The other thing that we need to think about is the Yerkes-Dodson curve of mm-hmm. 1908. Mm-hmm which is really the inverted U curve of performance. And we, and we think about you know, one dimension being performance and then the horizontal dimension being arousal or anxiety or stress. They all mean the same thing, basically, yeah. in this context. Yeah. And we see that if you're under-aroused, then you don't perform at your best. If you're over-aroused, you, you're in overwhelm. And peak performance is at a particular level of arousal. So we often use that sort of function, if you like, and we talk about you know high-performing teams or being yeah. at peak performance. And what we neglect is time in mm. that. The peak performance isn't this static function. It changes over time, and it changes depending on the different challenges placed before the person. And so we need to build into our world some redundant capacity, which is recreation, recuperation, reflection. So you know, having space to think about issues having space to recuperate. That needs to be built in. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we need to build in stretch as well Mm -hmm. because that's how we develop our capacities. But this notion that we have to be constantly at our peak performance Mm -hmm. I think is a really destructive one and actually undermines resilience because what happens then is we run around trying to pretend we're peak performing all the time Mm -hmm. when in fact we're not. We can't. And the things that we do then to do the recuperation and reflection, mm. they become the dirty little secret that that's we can't it. support, that we can't share no, with it. anyone. We don't actually get the recuperation out of them because they yeah. actually provide another stress for us. Because you're feeling yeah. guilty. Yeah. Um, I have to say, in the in the social media realm, the way that resilience is dealt with, I've never seen it dealt with in terms of seek support. Who are, who are your support systems? To, to continue to be resilient, very much focused on you as an individual, and certainly never about rest, recuperation, yeah. those things built into it. But I think that I think looking at the superficial side of it's also really important when you say it's your dirty little secret if you're actually having to take that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was interested looking at, again, in the psychology literature, the difference between recovery and resilience is supposed to be that recovery is a temporary period of psychopathology before returning to normal functioning, whereas resilience is going on with life despite adversity with no apparent disruption. And when I read that, I wrote next to it, psychopathy? I mean, how can you have no disruption? I my, my father recently passed away a few months ago, and I had to step back from work. The idea of undergoing normal functioning was completely anathema. So clearly you're not resilient. Well, that's it. And so, I mean, luckily I have a, a good workplace who said, take a month, that's okay. But if I'd had the kind of workplace that said, no, you need to be resilient, that's not, there's nothing human. Mm. And how well, does that show up even, later if you haven't taken that time? Mm. Yeah. 
So I once coached a person in the brewing industry uh, who was in charge of the bottling component of, of a major brewing company. And they just put in a new brewing line. And, and at the end of the coaching session, I asked, how many bottles an hour does it do? And he said some huge number. But then he said immediately, but we never run it at full capacity. Because if we do, it breaks down really quickly. Mm -hmm. If we run it at 80%, it'll go on forever. We don't expect that from machine. But from humans. But it, from humans, we mm. do. I mean, mm. yeah. you know, who would get into their car and redline it all the way home mm. and expect the car to be okay mm -hmm. in a couple of months' time? But we Gosh, do so that true. to ourselves in the workplace. All and we time. expect ourselves to just be resilient to that. Athletes don't believe it either. They train so they can be at peak performance at a particular time and they build recuperation into their system. Yeah, oscillation. Absolutely, it's totes a thing. Now what, what is... What is, what? is <laughs> This is a little phrase that Mel's had for a while. Oscillation, it's totes Oscillation a comes up for me in almost every conversation I have. It does. I it's always say it's totes a thing. It's totally a thing. order disorder, order disorder yeah. is a... You know, it's Necessary. the most robust pattern in the universe. And yet we try and take it completely out of our human world. But do you feel that that is simply a function of modern capitalist society? Do you think that us telling ourselves we have to be 100%, we have to be 100%, would that occur in a different social context? Or do you think that's historically... Well, do you do that in your families with your kids? Drive you... them at 100% all the time? Yes. Don't know, absolutely not. I think we're starting to a bit. Yeah. So, you know, when I was growing I up, I had footy practice once a week and a game of footy on the weekend. But now, you know, my grandkids have got something almost every night. Yeah, no, we definitely don't do that. And we had, you know, pyjama days on the weekends. And what the hell's a pyjama day? You stay in your pyjamas all day. Oh, oh great. Up in your house. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's probably that dirty little secret thing, yeah. you know, where you sort of think, oh, gosh. We want our kids to perform. Yeah. So okay. I think we're starting to do that in the family. It's a bleeding over of sure. our workplace. And what's your reading of why that's happening? Um, I think we've drunk the Kool-Aid on this. Mm. That somehow, you know, to be a whole human being, you have to be have peak performance all the time. Mm. And I think that, you know, much more human-oriented systems recognise that we can't be and make allowances for us. Good managers do that. You know, they, they sort of twist the rules of the system to allow people to recuperate. Mm -hmm. They recognise that this person's capable of that much and this person's capable of that much and it shifts over time. Do you get the sense that that allowance occurs for people much higher up the chain than it does for people lower down? No. No, I don't. I think we have a bit of a schizophrenic view of our leaders mm. where we expect them to be perfect all the time. Mm. They sort of pretend that they are. And so they can't talk about how they stuff up. I mean, you only have to look at Australian politics to hear that. And yet, we know that they can't be perfect and they can't handle all these things. And they know that they can't be perfect and can't handle all these things. But mm. yet, we treat them as if they, they could and should. There's two things causing it. And I don't know that this is particularly conscious in people, but one is that, you know, the resilience programs. If you go back through interventions in organisations over the past 10 or 20 years, we've had things like um, engagement programs, we've got resilient programs. There's been this pattern of interventions that have been placed in organisations and their purpose is typically to extract more value out of people's work, to make them more productive. Now, where do people get the 
if we think about that Yerkes Dodson curve, anxiety and arousal is all just energy. So where do people get the energy to be more and more productive? Because everyone's only got a certain amount. Mm -hmm. You can't just grow it ad infinitum. So where do you get that energy from? You get it from your families. Mm. You steal it from your families. You steal it from healthy eating. You steal it from your sleep. You steal it from your weekends. You steal it from civil society and being engaged in civil society. I mean, there's not a lot of people out there who are engaged in civil society anymore. Well, there are a lot. Mm. But but there is a growing number of people who have switched off from it. We saw our Prime Minister having a selfie done with someone and the person who was doing the selfie asked him what his name was. So this <laughs> That's is not necessarily their fault, though, on account of the fact that we do switch. To who is it this week? Yeah, 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 well, that's true, too. But the point being yes. that you know people are often not that engaged in the news. Mm. They're engaged yeah. in whatever the algorithms are telling them to be engaged in. So they're engaged in their tiny little bubble and there's very little perspective so, shifts going on. So, this is, this but, is what worries me about resilience because I think what's being fed to people about what it means to be resilient is very much this put your big girl pants on and puff your chest out and get out there and then take, take a selfie. selfie every single day. Take a selfie of yourself yeah. being resilient. This is very attractive to people in HR and managers and so on. The economic system requires them to be constantly growing productivity and efficiency. So they think, okay, here's a potential way forward to do that. Now, I don't think that these people are deliberately mean-spirited or anything like that. I think the system system is forcing them Mm -hmm. to try and extract more and more efficiency out of the system. And what's at stake for them are their jobs, Mm. share prices, remuneration packages, and so on. And the irony of that is the countries who have now engaged in shorter working days are getting more out of the... More productivity. Mm. So it's it's more recuperation. Of course. Yeah, Yeah. makes sense. So I think in the way that we've structured our economy, there is an imperative for continual growth. Yes, which is actually impossible. The only thing that continually grows eventually kills its host. (laughs) Like a tumour. That's true. You know, it's a bubble. Bubble, Nothing can continually grow. This positive feedback loop, which which is about growing, ultimately can't be sustained. And I think the attempts to do that are drawing more and more energy from people. And what I'd like to see happen is, is for us to sort of step back have a moment to think and think, okay, what is a good level of productivity? What is reasonable Mm -hmm. to ask of people? And what resources do we need to give them to do that? And this is not, uh, we'll just give more and more resources and get them to do more and more. That doesn't quite work that way because there will be a certain level of productivity that we can ask of people before, no matter what resources we give them, we're actually enslaving them. Do we have any final comments we'd like to make on the concept of resilience? I think the thing that we need to do is to think about resilience as a property of a system or a relation between a person and the system or environment that they're in. So that enables adaptation. If we think about it, at least one system out from the system that is the individual. For instance, a team is resilient if its holding environment has the resources that enable it to be able to 
to function. I think you're bang on. I think what, what Mel and I often come up against and what we often conclude is that a lot of these terms or all of these terms that we're looking at become problematic because they become simplified in order to be commodified. So as soon as you can take something, make it simple, that's when you can package it and sell it. Mm. It's much harder to sell. Resilience is a product of the system. Well, that puts requirements on the system to use some of its resources towards its workers, or more of its resources towards its workers, Mm. as opposed to using its workers to produce more resources. And that's where coaches can actually contribute to positive social change. Yeah. And don't don't get me wrong, I'm not sort of trying to present this as an arco-socialist perspective. What I'm trying to do is say, okay, what is the nature of the system? How do things actually work? And let's pay attention to that and work in ways that are congruent. Do you think organisations will get on board with that? I think eventually they'll have to. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like climate change. Eventually we're going to have to deal with it because it's there and the system is working this way. Governments are, you know, very busily burying their heads in the sand. But as the groundwater rises through the sand, they're going to have to step up and have a look. And what will the human equivalent of that be, just mass burnout? Well, I think we're getting close to that now. I think when we look at the the rates of mental health, depression and anxiety that people are Mm -hmm. suffering, the other thing that I see happening is increasing rates of anxiety and depression and mental illness amongst the young, you know, school-age children. And that's partly because we've given them the message that it's all about you. And one thing that children are is resource-poor, internally and externally, because they haven't had the time to develop those things. So they are terribly reliant on others and the resources around them to support them. And yet we're giving them the message that, hey... It's down to you, kids. And, by the way, you're going to have to solve the problems of the world. Yeah. And so I think that, well, that, that movement that we're seeing is is getting towards, I think, where the bubble will start to burst. And when the bubble bursts, then we'll start to do something different. Ho- hopefully we can see ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's and, the, and, that's and, what And catch hoping. it before it bursts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a hard one. It's, it's, it's an easy thing to sell, I think, to organisations. It's a, it's a two-hour workshop in resilience because... I think that organisations think they're doing something good to their Mm. employees. And I know people that have been through them and have said, oh, that was really great. Can't necessarily say what was great about it, but just walked away and said, oh, that was really great. Probably the relatedness factor. Having space. give a sense of hope. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots and lots of things going on in the world that are happening to increase that sort of resilience um, in a real way. Mm. Often they're called sustainability things. So, for instance... Companies reorganising the way that they work together, the movement towards cooperatives. There's lots and lots of different activities that people are getting involved in now as ways of pooling resources to be able to work together effectively. And also resisting some of the pushes to try and be ultra-productive all the time. My takeaway from all of this as a coach is that it's it's really important for us to be reframing what resilience means and that, it, that yes, absolutely, it has something to do with your internal resources, but it, it is also highly context-driven and encouraging people to, to go out and find what those external resources are. Really yeah. map them out almost. And encouraging yeah. and with managers that you coach to help garner to those resources those. and create those resources yeah. in their teams and to yeah. understand what is reasonable to ask of people. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks yeah. for talking no to us Good. at the Coaching Kool-Aid. Yeah. Okay.
Africa. And again, any other any any comments that you've got, you can email us at info at space to think.net. Don't drink that.